If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. It's a Monday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And everybody just seems a little bit more calm. We're in the middle of summer. Everybody's relaxed, having a good time. Y'all feeling it? Yeah, I had a lovely weekend. You went to Canada, your native land. I did. It was a like the golden kind of beach day. So the kind that feels like it lasts forever and you just feel like really great at the end of it. Yeah, the height of summer. It's um, it's a great time to be alive. Let's begin. The case of the 10-year-old Ohio girl who went to Indiana for an abortion sparked some debate about how common it is for children to be raped and become pregnant. Adam Faris took a look at the issue through the lens of one family where not one, but two young girls were raped and became pregnant. Laura, what did he learn? Basically, that this scenario is not as rare as we would like it to be. So yes, these sisters, 10 and 13, were impregnated um, when they were raped by the same perpetrator, their mother's boyfriend. And this was last year while the heartbeat bill was still blocked and Roe versus Wade had not been overturned. You could get abortions here up to 22 weeks, but obviously no one expects a 10 and a 13-year-old girl to become pregnant. So their family, the girls didn't know, and neither did their family. The younger girl was able to get an in-state abortion. She was not at 22 weeks yet, but her sister was too far along to get one here. So they trans- they traveled to Pennsylvania for the procedure. And Cuyahoga County, Michael O'Malley, Cuyahoga County prosecutor, Michael O'Malley, he signed this letter with dozens of other prosecutors saying they're not going to prosecute people who seek or provide abortions. And he says this case shows why there's a need for exceptions in Ohio's abortion law for sexual assault, which I think when we talk about the 10-year-old case, the 10-year-old in Columbus, that's the whole point, right? There's no exceptions. Well, we we set off on this story when people were casting doubt on the story Mm -hmm. of the 10-year-old before somebody was arrested. You remember the, the doctor that performed the procedure in Indiana went public with it. And conservatives and conservative media started to say hoax. Uh, We'll be talking about Dave Yost here in a minute. And we were talking to Michael Malley and he said, look, this is not uncommon. We see this with a shocking regularity. There are a lot of kids that end up pregnant and that's automatically rape. These are kids that cannot have consent. I mean, the number of kids under 15 that have abortions is pretty high. So we set off to do this story and it was 
you know, it's a mess. It's a family mess. The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the mom convinced the kids to accuse their natural father of being the one that had sex with them. And it took DNA tests to prove, no, it was the mom's boyfriend that impregnated both of these girls. And it took the grandmother to notice that right. the 10 year old's belly was swelling to figure out something was wrong. And the mom, of course, passed it off saying she's eating a lot of food. But, but the point of the story is, this happens a lot. This is not uncommon. There are a lot of bad guys out there that are having sex with young children. Right. It's in in 2020 in Ohio, there were 52 girls under the age of 15 who obtained abortions. That was including 11 from Cuyahoga County. That's according to the Ohio Department of Health. And since 2010, more than a thousand girls in Ohio under the age of 15 had had the procedure. The report doesn't say if abortions were be- performed because of rape, but these kids are these are kids. They're less than 15. I mean, chances so that, are they're all rape. No, no, no. It's automatically rape. Yeah. You can't have sex with a 15-year-old in Ohio. That's automatically going to be a charge of rape. And that's that's the point. These kids are all pregnant because of sex forced on them by by usually somebody they know. So that's why we did the story. It's very ugly. It was very painful to read. You can only imagine what life is like for this 10 and 13 year old. And I just want to point out that now the law says, you know, heartbeat activity. And that's like about six weeks. That's before someone who's a grown up probably knows that they're pregnant. And when you've got a kid who doesn't know what's going on, like there's no way they'd know within six weeks. And I know that Dave Yost has said, hey, they could get an exception because it's a, the health of the mother. But that's a very iffy thing, very squishy. And I don't know that doctors are ever going to want to risk that. So no, it's just something you really got to think about before you kind of pass these laws. If the doctor does that and then some zealot law enforcement person decides, nope, nope, I'm going to charge you. The doctor could not only lose their license, they could go to prison. The law needs to be specific or doctors aren't going to do it. They're going to say the kids have to go out of state. It's today in Ohio. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost stepped into a swamp, as we mentioned, when he tried to politicize the case of the 10-year-old rape victim, casting some doubt on whether the case was even real. And reporter Andrew Tobias took a look at what the long-term political ramifications might be. Layla, what did he find? Yeah, I mean, Yost brought great shame to our state, I'd argue, when he when he went on Fox News and suggested that this story of the 10-year-old rape survivor who went to Indiana for the abortion was probably false because no agency had reported that crime to his office. And then even after her attacker was arrested and charged, he doubled down on his comments and said he stands by everything that he said. So most people would probably agree that his comments are pretty appalling and in a normal Decent world, appalling behavior would cost candidates their reelection bid. But this isn't a normal, decent world. This is Ohio in 2022, baby. So <laughs> Andrew Tobias sought to answer the question of just how much of an impact, if any at all, Yo's scandal would have on his chances in November, but also what were the other broader consequences of what he said. And and I guess, you know, let's start there for a second. So number one, you know, the state's attorney general doubting the story of a 10-year-old rape victim that could really prevent future victims from coming forward, given that we're still grappling with the social stigma and the fear that people have that, you know, you, you may not be believed if you disclose that you've been sexually assaulted. So let's say that up front. Shame on Yost for more deeply embedding that stigma into our culture. You know, the effect of that can't be uh, fully quantified. But with that said, you know, Andrew points out that 
the Yoast scandal really smoked out some clarity, as you were saying earlier in the earlier segment, about how the medical exemption of Ohio's heartbeat bill would work. There aren't any specific medical conditions spelled out in it. And so doctors would be averse to performing abortions without specificity on who qualifies under those exemptions because they they certainly don't want to be charged with a felony. So Yost as has said that the 10-year-old at the heart of this case would have sought an abortion, you know, could have sought an abortion in Ohio because the pregnancy threatened her life, so she qualified for an exemption is what he's saying in his opinion. Okay, well, that's an important distinction. These are things that need to be carved out. What what we're trying to get at, though, is will this affect him in his future political leanings? Well, yeah. I mean, okay. as far as his reelection chances go, you know, Yost is favored to win in November against Jeff Crossman, the Democrat from Parma. And, And I don't think many of us, including Andrew, see that changing on account of this. Andrew points out that the scandals have typically rolled off the backs of Republicans in the state. He points to, you know, things like the electronic classroom of tomorrow online charter school scandal and and the House Bill 6 nuclear bailout law scandal. I mean, Republicans are probably going to be impervious to the whole role they played in gerrymandering against the wish of voters, for heaven's sake. So, you know, Democrats are insisting that abortion is such a, a visceral hot button issue that what Yo said about this young rape survivor is different and that he can't possibly outrun it. But, you know, Andrew's kind of like, meh. <laughs> and I don't think this registers with most Republican voters at all. Nothing sticks to these guys. So, yeah. So for his attorney general run, probably not going to have an effect. I just wa- I no. do think he has higher aspirations, whether it's governor or senator in two years against Sherrod Brown. And I wonder if it would if a good candidate could bring that back to haunt him then. Well, Andrew seemed to be suggesting that he doesn't he didn't predict that this was would come up, that this that by then this would register with anybody by that time. That, uh, you know, like it's not, like I always say, voters in Ohio are like goldfish in a fishbowl. They forget about it as soon as it <laughs> passes by their eyes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. OK, well, it's a thoughtful story by Andrew. Check it out. It's on it really com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A letter to the editor asked the question and Seth Richardson had to go very deep to find the answer. Lisa, why do taxpayers foot the bill for for the elections of the committees for political parties in Ohio, something that voters are seeing in large numbers on their August 2nd primary ballot. Well, the Ohio Revised Code requires that the central committees be on the primary ballot. And this goes all the way back to the turn of the 20th century. So you have to think back about the Gilded Age. You know, robber barons ruled, they had control over legislation, and political parties were were the dominant power structure in America back then. If you think about Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall, how, you know, they ran the Democratic machine in New York, both in the city and statewide. So they needed to kind of break that that hold that the parties had over, you know, legislation and who got nominated to the ballot. So in Ohio, back in the 1890s, 90s, they tried direct primaries, but that didn't work. It, it got overturned. So it really started in 1904. State Representative Hiram S. Bronson, who was formerly uh, a 
ahead of the Franklin County Board of Elections, introduced a bill for single-day primaries that would be overseen by the Board of Elections instead of these party apparatuses. Um, that failed. And at the time, primary, like I said, primary elections were handled by political party members and the party bosses controlled the entire nominating process. So in 1908, he tried again and the Bronson primary law was passed. It mandated direct primaries for Congress and local offices and also included local central committee candidates who would have a role in nominating via a state convention other than, you know, their party machinery. Uh, the plain dealer had a quote in 1908 said that this will mark a new era in politics of the state. So what's being called direct democracy grew during the 20th century and the power of party committees had decreased over those years. So the function of the, the central party committees today, they still endorse candidates, but they mostly handle internal party functions. Yeah, it's fascinating that this was a good government aspect that the because they had party bosses and and the story lays out what who the magnets were because of that they had to do this reform but the shame of it is nobody knows who these people are that they're voting for on their ballot you, even when they go online to look up who are these committee people they can't find anything so is this really a good government idea to have these committees be on the ballot they do have a quasi public purpose they do sometimes replace people when there's vacant positions but for the most part like you said it's all internal house stuff I think it's an artifact that's left over that they just couldn't get rid of. So we just couldn't completely get rid of the party machinery. And so maybe this was a concession of sorts, but they are mostly stripped of their power. But yes, we are paying, you know, tax money to put them on the ballot and nobody knows who they are. There were people that pointed out that the cost is minimal, that you already have to print the ballot and the cost of counting the votes isn't that high. And if this is a way to have some public accountability for who's running these very powerful parties, then maybe we should keep it. But it took a lot of work to figure this out because nobody who's alive today was around when all this came together and and searching the archives. Seth had to go deep into the Plain Dealer and the Columbus Dispatch archives to come up with it. A fascinating historical tale on why people are seeing what they're seeing on their ballots. And actually, I learned a little factoid from Seth's story, too, because I didn't really know about central party committees. So basically, there's one man and one woman in each Senate district. And I don't know how many Senate districts there are in Ohio. I think it's 13, but I don't know. And and the GOP, they they re-nominate theirs or you know, run for election every two years. The Democrats' committees, they run every four years. I thought it was fascinating that it's one man and one woman because it dates to a time where women were just getting the vote. And yet this is enshrined in law. One of the few times that men and women were equal in the law back in the beginning of the 20th century, I'm sure. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the best strategies people in Ohio can use for reducing the huge annoyance of robocalls and spam calls? Laura, we've touched a nerve here. I put this out on subtext, then was inundated with responses from people who were so annoyed by these. They're also annoyed by robotechs, which we'll be following up with. Mm -hmm. But how do you reduce the robocalls? So, yeah, I mean, everybody's annoyed by this, right? By one, one estimate, there's close to 1.8 billion calls already in Ohio this year. 1.8 billion. And so both, basically the best way is don't answer them. Like I know some people like to 
pick up the phone and I don't know if they're bored. They just like to, you know, harass these poor telephone uh, callers, but don't do that because then you get marked down as a live number and they'll call you even more. So um, then basically don't answer the phone if you don't know the number, which apparently 80% of people already do. You can make sure that you're on the do not call registry that only applies to telemarketing. So that's not every robocall, but if you have a violation of that, you can file a complaint and then know your phone. If you have an iPhone, you can basically be unavailable to all numbers not on your contacts list. And if you have a Google phone or uh, an Android, you can basically do the same thing. So you have to be a little technology savvy, but not answering the phone is your best bet. Yeah, I I learned from the subtexters that of the iPhone apparatus, you go to phone in the settings and then you click silence unknown numbers. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how much that has reduced my phone going off every day. And you get a little notification that a silence number has come in, but it, it has already changed the annoyances. Highly recommend it. Good stuff by Zachary Smith. The tips are all online. There's also kind of expensive services that you can use to do this, Laura. Yeah, I haven't done any of those, but you can pay for apps if you're into to paying for apps. And I'm sure hopefully you get what you pay for and they're worth it. Um, but I think it's crazy when you get a call that comes in that's like, what does it say? Like likely spam or something? Like they're all, <laughs> don't answer these phone numbers. They, they're very clear they are not meant. And some of them are leaving messages for me now. I, I feel like they didn't used to do that. So now you have to delete the voicemails when they come up. Yeah, yeah the, the apps aren't one-time costs either. It's it's 4 and $5 a month for the long term. It seems a little bit stiff. I have a hard time re- paying for any app, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to, to reduce something that you shouldn't have to deal with anyway. I mean, the, the government should be doing something to reduce this. Dave Yost claims he is, and he's taken some people to to court. It's funny, the, but all of this stuff deals with cell phones, right? Like, my parents still have a landline, and... The only people that call the landline are robocallers. Yeah. Well, and politicians, of course, are exempt. You can't stop them. They, <laughs> they always exempt themselves from the regulations. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the Cleveland Clinic doing to cope with a dire shortage of livers available for people needing transplants? Layla, some good news at the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, this was a fascinating story by our health reporter, Gretchen Kuda-Crowen. The clinic is is the nation's busiest liver transplant hospital, and they've been trying to close this gap between those in need of a liver and the number of available organs. And so one life-saving innovation that's becoming more common at the clinic's is the clinic's split liver transplants, where they divide a single liver between two patients. They started actually doing these back in the 80s for children who needed smaller organs, but unfortunately they'd use a small piece for the child and then the rest of the organ would go to waste. So then eventually they realized they could use the larger piece for an adult and then save two lives. And as a result, the mortality rate today for kids awaiting a liver transplant dropped from 40% to 10% for infants and 5% for older kids. But overall, when you factor in adults, 20% of patients are still dying while waiting for a liver to become available. So they're attempting more split liver transplants for adults, and they're seeing greater success rates. But it's still not routine for a number of reasons, because first of all, not all livers can be split. You need kind of that perfect liver from a perfect donor, and it requires a big team to split the liver and transplant it. And you also need a really healthy recipient, which, as you can imagine, probably isn't always the case on the top of the liver transplant list. 
So Gretchen's story also talks about innovations and in how livers are transported. Apparently, as many as 2,000 livers were discarded last year because they weren't deemed suitable or didn't make it to the recipient in time. So instead of transporting the liver in a cooler full of ice, the way they always have been, there are these new technologies that have sprung up that allow the liver to survive better. There's one called ex vivo perfusion that basically acts as a mini portable ICU that keeps the organ alive. It circulates blood and medicines through the liver until it reaches its destination. So all of these have been just game changers for the Cleveland Clinic and for folks on the liver transplant list. Uh, you know, everyone should go look at Gretchen's story. There's lots of, of good stuff in it. And this really sweet story about these two women who call themselves, uh, you know, sisters because they they share the same liver. <laughs> the idea that you would have to upend the list is interesting because according to her story now, the sickest people are first in line. But as you right, said, right. you can't be that sick and get a split liver. You have to be in much better shape. So you wonder if you start ending, start up with two lists, one for split livers, one for full livers. It's a, it's an interesting quandary. Yeah. It seems like you would have to rethink how these things are triaged for sure. Yeah. Good story. Yeah. And you're right. It was very sweet with the, the two women that split the liver. Mm -hmm. It's today in Ohio. Economists say they're seeing signs that the hot, hot, hot job market is finally cooling with some major employers laying off large numbers of people and cutting positions. But you'd never know that from the latest jobs report in Ohio. Lisa, what does it show? Yeah, the uh, numbers for June in Ohio, the uh, jobless rate was 3.9%. That was unchanged from May. It was 5.3% in June of 2021, so quite a bit, big difference there. And we are doing better slightly than the national rate. Uh, the national jobless rate for June was 3.6%, so just three-tenths of a point uh, higher here in Ohio. Um uh, the uh, spokesman for the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services, Bill Teat, says that the labor force participation rate is looking good. It's 62 percent here in Ohio. That number reflects the a number of working age people who are either working or actively seeking jobs. And Teat says that this means people probably have a better chance of landing a job if they're going to be going out there and looking. So the number of unemployed workers dropped by 2,000 in June from May to June to 224,000. Thousand uh, without jobs here in Ohio. The, the, it's interesting. This is still so robust because there were a bunch of national level stories last week that, about how the Fed is glad that the job market is cooling, that the the hyperinflated job market is part of our current inflation problem. And you just wonder: is it a lag that we're Ohio is just a little bit behind, and then a month from now that we'll we'll see things are a little bit worse than they seem now. Yeah, of course, you know, labor for, and they always have to correct their jobless rates too, you know, so they announce them at a certain time of the month, but a lot of times they have to correct them either upward or downward as more data comes in. So it's always kind of a moving target. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the jobs of the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is ensuring the culverts, streams, and rivers that drains the region's rainwater stay clear. Not really much of a problem this summer with the lack of rain, but overall an important, important job. What do we see when photographer Josh Gunter accompanied a district team on a routine inspection of Dome Brook, Laura? It sounds really cool. And there are great photos that Josh has. And I didn't 
really realize that they have to do all of this work on the natural waterways, not just the sewer pipes and the storm sewer pipes. I mean, there's a lot of work. 476 miles of waterways in Greater Cleveland, and they remove the debris if necessary to ensure that they remain free-flowing and check out all of the infrastructure. So they went in an underground culvert of Doan Creek and University Circle, and like the crew put on waders, safety harnesses. They had air quality alarms to alert uh, for unsafe levels of carbon monoxide or combustible gases. They had radios, emergency breathing kits, video, video cameras, helmets, and flashlights, and a rescue crew on site in case of emergency. So this isn't something they just like send one person down to check it out. This is a big undertaking. And they went down, they stopped at various spots where concrete had cracked or broken. They noted and recorded the points. And basically they said everything looked good. So everything and this particular culvert was fine, and they came back out. And Josh has really cool-looking photos that you can see. When we say culvert, we're really talking about a tunnel, right? Yes. This is where they so, goes under so under a road. Yeah, they're crawling around in the dark, looking to make sure that what there's not tree trunks blocking the way, and they they drag them out if they are. Well, that's part of it, but also the concrete. And when they want to make sure that that culvert, the the way that, you know, it's built is still stable, that it's not going to collapse anytime soon. Because, I mean, that's all infrastructure that's important for the water, but also the roadway on top of it, right? You want to make sure that it's all in good shape, just like they inspect bridges. Okay. Yeah, the photos are on cleveland.com. They're pretty interesting. It's today in Ohio. How much has COVID spread in Ohio in the most recent week? Layla, I hear from certain readers pretty regularly who berate us because we don't do enough to raise the alarm about COVID. And it's a real balancing act because my read on how many people are reading the COVID stories, it's pretty low. It's almost like people don't care, but it's spreading. I don't know if people don't care. I just think it, it's like a soul crusher, you know, and people are just crushed. But yes, it's happening in Ohio again, Chris. Julie Washington reports that about half of Ohio's 88 counties are now red, which is the designation for having high COVID-19 transmission. And that's according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention map. Most Northeast Ohio counties, including Cuyahoga, remain yellow or designated as having medium COVID-19 transmission. Lorraine and Medina counties have worsened to red. But last week, only nine Ohio counties were designated red. So the pendulum is swinging. And red, of course, means the transmission level is high enough to potentially overwhelm hospitals. So and, and, we're in that jackpot again. Well, in the week before, I think it was only nine, right? So we've gone to nine from nine to more than half. Is that what yes. it says? Yeah. Yes. Nine were red and now we're up. You know, uh. We've talked anecdotally that we, we all know a bunch of people that had escaped getting COVID for the entire pandemic and suddenly you're getting it. Laura and I interviewed one of our colleagues last weekend or last week who turned out to get it days later. And I don't think either of us have uh, have caught it but it's it just it feels so much like deja vu because last summer at this point everybody had thrown caution to the wind we'd all gone out and had a great summer and delta swept through as the late summer and fall came feels like we're doing that with the fifth variant yeah yes i'm a little panicked because just before this podcast i was telling everyone that i just sent my child off to a sleepaway camp and Laura said that she knows someone who whose two children returned last week from that same camp with COVID. Right, we're going to hope it does not happen to your kid. I just I know, but I, I yeah. it is a risk, and I I uh, it, and it I does took make it. me want to get those dice. I want 
I want to get my kids boosted. They're not boosted yet. And I see these Mine cases and I'm like, yeah. all right, it's time to schedule that appointment. Yeah. I would like yeah, to get yeah. boosted again myself. Can we do that again? Yeah. Well, when's but, that come? Yeah, right. But the problem is, is the, the booster shot doesn't stop you from getting it. It just gives you some protection okay. if you do get it. I think they're talking October before we get the updated shot with the Omicron variants in it, which by October, who knows how far and wide this will have spread. I don't know. I, I keep hearing from from certain people that just say you, you need to keep this in front of people. They've gotten complacent. And I'm not sure what the answer is, because, Laura, you can see how many people read those stories when we do them. It's not many. Well, I think because they think this is a way of life and we're living it, that we're in this endemic phase and they realize there's a risk anytime they go anywhere and they don't want to think about it. Because I'm kind of with yeah. Layla that that it's fatigue. Yeah. It's not, it's not a lack of caring. It's just fatigue. Yeah. yeah. And you know, but there are some cities I just read on CNN this morning that some cities are considering reinstating their indoor masking rules. Boston is one and LA is another. So well, they're the, seeing rising transmissions as well. The Ohio Supreme court on Friday said, you got to wear a mask in here. Laura, how many people did you see in masks as you traveled about this weekend? Um, no one. <laughs> I mean, and I was in Canada too. Actually, that's not true. There was like a server I saw wearing a mask. But in Canada, they've been more careful longer. And, but yeah, no, I think people just think it's summer and masks are really uncomfortable when they get sweaty. And I'm not seeing it. No, are I'm... their numbers as bad in, in Canada? I do not know. Hmm. They've all been vaccinated by now. They, their vaccine was a lot slower to roll out, but they've caught up. So I, I, I have noticed just anecdotally, you know, in my out and about running errands that I, I'm seeing masks use rising again and people in stores. It seems to be mostly older people, but I've seen more masks lately than I have. Yeah, I was really glad I wore a mask while we did that interview last week, Laura, because when he when we got the note that said, yeah, he's got it. And that was a couple of days ago. Uh, I'm, really. I'm, I think we're past it. I'm keeping my fingers crossed to still feel fine. <laughs> swam, in a, swam in a great lake. And so that's keeping my You're <laughs> keeping your immunity up, all that bacteria. All right. <laughs> oh, You're listening so to Today in Ohio. That's it for a Monday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.